This podcast is sponsored by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org. Hello and welcome back to How We Got Here, Season 2. Your enthusiasm for us has been absolutely amazing. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. Okay, history lovers, if you're just joining us, feel free to go back and binge all seven episodes of Season 1. And here's a little refresher on how this works. I'm Rachel DePompa, an investigative reporter with WWBT NBC12 in Richmond, Virginia. I'm going to admit it, I've become an official history geek. I firmly believe we can learn a lot about our history, our nature, and our future by looking back into our past. On How We Got Here, we cover Virginia's rich history one week at a time, bringing you, as one loyal listener puts it, bite-sized glimpses into our Commonwealth's past that you can enjoy during your commute to and from work. Somebody told us they missed an exit. They were so enthralled by season one. And yes, I do read all of the reviews you post on iTunes, especially the good ones. We can go back hundreds of years. Give me liberty! To the founding of this country. Oh, give me death! Or deep into the civil war that divided us. There's a little pop culture. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. And we've been known to dabble in music. We're not afraid to shine a light on the darkest days of Virginia's past. Virginia always had one of the largest populations of enslaved people of any colony and then state. Or bring you a little hope for our future. If I can grow up and make it that amazing for another kid, I'll feel, I'll feel like I gave back. So let's get going. We're turning back the clock on November 18th through the 24th. Four score and seven years ago. You know the line. Do I have to say any more? We all learned it in school. You probably had to memorize it for a speech. I think I did in the third grade, maybe. Sorry, Miss Swan, if I can't remember. It's the famous beginning to President Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, a speech that happened November 19, 1863, 156 years ago. Lincoln was asked to help dedicate the National Cemetery of Gettysburg in Pennsylvania, the site of one of the bloodiest and most decisive battles of the Civil War. He was actually the last speaker of the day, offering up a 272-word address. It's now one of the most iconic speeches in American history, but it didn't start out that way. In fact, in the days that followed, for most newspapers, that speech wasn't even a footnote. Including Richmond, the city's main source for news at the time, the Daily Dispatch. That's the predecessor to the Richmond Times-Dispatch. It made at least three references to the cemetery dedication, but did not once mention President Lincoln's address. It's not like a newsworthy 
piece, so it's not a huge surprise that it largely is missing from contemporary news coverage. That's Robert Nelson with the University of Richmond. We found him mentioned in a Richmond Times-Dispatch article while we were researching this topic. He has a PhD in American Studies. Much of his work is focused on the Civil War. He's also the director of the Digital Scholarship Lab, which is why he spent so much time combing through old newspapers. Kind of odd job. I'm an odd historian in that I work in the Digital Scholarship Lab, direct this, and uh, we're a digital humanities center. And we're experimenting with different techniques of using computers and computation to uh, explore topics in American history and also using digital media to present topics in interesting and different ways. And he's not surprised Lincoln got such little coverage that week in 1863, not only here in Richmond, but across the country. Before Lincoln even took the stage, famed orator Edward Everett spoke for two hours. Yeah, poor Everett. <laughs> poor Edward Everett. I guess it's 13, what is it, 13,000 word address, two hours is, I mean, it's not, not surprising. Everett was really famed as an orator. He'd been a minister, he'd been president of Harvard College, he'd been senator, and I think he was a secretary of state as well. He was, I believe, in his late 60s at that point. He dies in 1865, if I remember correctly. So not long after this. And he had spent several years before the Civil War and, and during the Civil War, he was basically a, like on a almost perpetual speaking tour. He really was considered one of the greatest speakers, maybe the greatest orator in America in that moment, which is why he gave the main speech that day. And you heard me right. If you're still pondering this, I know I was. Edward Everett spoke for two hours. Can you imagine that happening today? No, but that was, I mean, you don't have television, right? The oratory is an art of the day in the 19th century, so that's not unusual. I'm mean, just giving like a Lincoln example. Think of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. They traveled around and they would they would debate for hours and hours and hours, and did this for weeks on end. A different time and a different attention span. Nelson says Everett took the brunt of the mockery in Confederate newspapers, including the Richmond Daily Dispatch. Remember. It's 1863. I mean, he was a really accomplished orator. And even the dispatch, they really make fun of him and rip into him. They say, like, he would have he would have been a, like a coward. They kind of belittle him as, as somebody who couldn't have fought at Gettysburg. But he's, he was 69 years old. They don't mention that. Nelson says there was even a disparity in how papers in the North covered the speech, if they did at all. That's because at the time you had Republican-leaning papers and Democrat-leaning ones. This is never more evident than when the editorial board for the Patriot News in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, retracted a 150-year-old editorial where it had said Lincoln's, quote, silly remarks at Gettysburg were deserving of the, quote, veil of oblivion. Yeah, they got that one wrong. They really got that one wrong. That is not unusual for partisan opponents of Lincoln to just, you know, mock and belittle things that your your opponent said. So that was not uncommon. They weren't alone in taking every opportunity to take pot shots at their political opponents. 
Though it was just the last speech of the day, his three-minute address was quite extraordinary. He helped bring the country together, especially the North, when it was so divided over its views of the war. I mean, they obviously don't know that this war is going to last about a year and a half more. They're in the midst of this hellish war. They've seen tens of thousands of men die, uh, thousands of them on this very battlefield, and to try and wrestle some higher purpose from this massive loss of life is, you know, one of Lincoln's aims as a, as a president and, and as an orator on this uh, particular occasion. But it's a great piece of oratory, and from a man who obviously would be, less than two years later, would be assassinated and held up as a kind of national martyr and hero for this kind of beautiful piece of oratory. To live on is, uh, in that respect, not, not surprising. Lincoln even gave a disclaimer during his speech, saying, quote, The world will little note, nor long remember, what we say here. How's that for irony? Yeah, yeah, it's a great line. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's wonderful when that's sketched in stone at your, your monument because it emphasizes modesty. But he was also, I mean, what, it's appropriate. It's rhetorically appropriate for the occasion because he's trying to draw attention to sacrifice of the men who gave their lives on that battlefield. Seven score and 16 years ago this week. The Gettysburg Address. In it, Lincoln brought forth, on this continent, a new birth of freedom, even if it wasn't covered in all the local papers. This year, Virginia celebrated the 400th anniversary of the first meeting of the General Assembly in Jamestown in 1619. There was a huge ceremony over the summer. Even President Trump made the trip to speak at the commemoration of the birth of democracy. To every Virginian and every legislator with us today, Congratulations on four incredible centuries of history, heritage, and commitment to the righteous cause of American self-government. This is truly a momentous occasion. Virginia boasts the oldest continuous lawmaking body in the Western Hemisphere, and the General Assembly still meets today. But it was actually the year before 1619 that the groundwork was laid for our form of government that lives on today. It was November 18, 1618. What we now know as Virginia was then just a colony overseen by the Virginia Company of London. The colony had just appointed a new governor, Sir George Yardley and the Virginia Company's top officers drafted a set of instructions for Yardley. It's known as the Great Charter. This document detailed how the colony's finances should be handled, as well as how it should be governed. But the Virginia Company's reputation wasn't as polished as they wanted. Tales of a strange regime made their way across the Atlantic to England and the company needed to convince people that Virginia was an acceptable place to live. In 
One of the ways they did this was through the Great Charter of 1618, which authorized the creation of a Council of State and General Assembly. An assembly whose main purpose was to introduce, quote, just laws for the happy guiding and governing of the people. Sir George Yardley arrived in the colony of Virginia in 1619 and called for the selection of two representatives from each of the 11 major settlements, known as Burgesses. The 1619 assembly was comprised of those Burgesses, the governor and his appointed council of state, which was a collection of the wealthiest and most prominent men in the colony. Here's something you may not have known. The first General Assembly session lasted only six days in the summer of 1619, mainly because of the intense Virginia heat. One man died during the session. It was so hot. But those six hot days in Virginia would transform the way of life and government for millions, perhaps billions, of people in the following four centuries. Democracy was born out of the Great Charter, drafted on November 18, 1618, in Virginia. Little did the Virginia Company of London know that set of instructions for an incoming governor would influence the very future of the Western Hemisphere. Richmond is known for many big names. Arthur Ashe, John Marshall, Maggie Walker, the list goes on. But a lesser known and equally important woman grew up in the River City. She helped usher in a new era of Southern literature, namely the way women are portrayed. And on November 21st, 1945, Ellen Glasgow suffered her fourth heart attack and died in her sleep in her home on West Main Street. It still stands today, about a block from Richmond's most famous hotel, the Jefferson. Glasgow was a Virginia-born Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist whose realistic depictions of women's life in the South made her famous. Born into an aristocratic Virginia family in April 1873, Glasgow wasn't like many of her peers. She was educated at home due to poor health, but that didn't stop her from reading deeply into topics like philosophy and social and political theory. The Civil War ended several years before Glasgow was born, but society in the South was still evolving as she was growing up and Glasgow was well aware of the enormous social and economic changes that took place in her home state in the decades before her birth. In 1897, Glasgow anonymously published her first novel called The Descendant. She was just 24 years old. It was so well received, it allowed her to launch a series of novels focused on the upheaval of society and politics in the years leading up to the Civil War. 
A few years later, she would travel to England, returning to the Commonwealth as an enthusiastic supporter of women's suffrage, helping to establish the Equal Suffrage League of Virginia in 1909. And she wasn't just avid about the vote. Glasgow served as president of the Richmond SPCA for 21 years and was the driving force behind opening a shelter, one of the first in the entire country, in 1924. I have to go off the deep end here, guys. I have a ghost story for you. This is it. Don't get scared now. For more than half a century, Glasgow lived in that home on West Main Street in Richmond and wrote many of her novels within the walls of a second-floor study, clacking away on her typewriter. If you can't handle ghost stories, this is where you skip forward 30 seconds. We found an article from 1980 in a Richmond magazine called Style Weekly which is still very popular to this day. That article describes Glasgow's home as haunted. People hearing footsteps, even the ringing of a buzzer she used to summon servants. Glasgow herself wrote that while she was alone in the house, ghosts were her only companions. In her autobiography, she even describes a chilling encounter with a malevolent force. The home now holds offices for attorneys, where you would expect to hear the clicking of a keyboard. But we like to think the clacking of a typewriter can still be heard decades after Glasgow's death. Back to our story. Many of her famous novels were centered on women, and the role of women in Southern society. She had a huge success with Barren Ground, The Sheltered Life, and Vein of Iron. Many people who study Glasgow say it was with increasing ironic treatment. She was focused on the decay of Southern aristocracy, the society she was born into, and the way women were treated. But it wouldn't be until her final novel in 1941 titled In This Our Life that she would win the coveted Pulitzer Prize for Literature. Warner Brothers quickly bought the script, adapting it into a movie that was released in 1942. Today, there's a high school in Fairfax County named for Glasgow, but she's still not as well known as her contemporaries, William Faulkner and Edith Wharton. Glasgow died in her Richmond home on November 21st, 1945. Remembered not only for her Pulitzer Prize, but the feminism within her fiction. A commitment she called women's liberation of personality. Ellen Glasgow's memoirs were published after her death in 1954, aptly titled, The Woman Within. It's the moment for baby boomers.
when they know exactly where they were on this earth. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. President John Fitzgerald Kennedy shot as he rode in a motorcade through the streets of Dallas, Texas. A day of love and ovations. But three quick shots shattered this day, November 22nd, 1963. The 35th president was just 46 years old and had served less than three years in the Oval Office. We all know what followed, the questions and conspiracy theories, years of speculation. But did you know? Just weeks before JFK was assassinated, he and First Lady Jackie Kennedy had officially become Virginians. At least when they weren't at the White House. They had just completed work on Wexford, a 166-acre estate outside of Middleburg, Virginia, a town of just 673 people, about an hour west from the political gridlock of Washington, D.C. It was bought in 1963 as a retreat for the family. Five bedrooms, five and a half bathrooms, there's a pool and tennis court, and spectacular views of beautiful Virginia horse country. The name Wexford was a throwback to the Irish birthplace of Kennedy ancestors. The Kennedys weren't the only presidential family to stay on this estate. President Ronald Reagan and First Lady Nancy Reagan rented the property for a short time before they moved into the White House. President Kennedy and his family only got to spend three weekends at Wexford. Their last visit, November 10, 1963, 12 days before that fateful day in Dallas. In a handwritten letter, the First Lady called Wexford a dream that her family wished they could live in all year long. Wexford and its unknown potential for Camelot. It's changed hands many times over the years, last sold in 2017 for $2.8 million. We certainly can't take you through history in November without a little turkey. <laughs> many families have their own Thanksgiving tradition. In my family, no one wants that canned cranberry sauce on the table. Well, except my brother, John. But he loves this podcast, and he got me into podcasts, so I'll let it slide. There's a ceremony that goes back three centuries in Virginia. That's unusual, to say the least, and lives on to this day. Each Thanksgiving, hundreds gather at the Executive Mansion in Richmond. That's the home of our governor. They watch tribal members of the Mattapanai and Pamunkey offer the governor wild game. The governor presides over the ceremony 
which includes generations of Native American people dressed in traditional outfits. As you can imagine, they are typically surrounded by quite the crowd of onlookers and tourists. In recent years, they've presented two trust deer. That means their legs are bound and they're hanging upside down from a pole. The deer is gutted the night before and stuffed with newspapers and plastic bags. The carcass is then sewn back up. It's quite the scene, just steps away from the governor's front door. Most of the time, the deer is donated to the charity Hunters for the Hungry, which serves venison to people in need. But traditions are meant to be tweaked. Thank you very much for attending this important event today. In 2010, then-Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell had the mansion's chef prepare the offering for dinner. It's said McDonnell enjoyed the meal. It's a tradition that dates back 342 years to 1677, when the Treaty of Middle Plantation was signed. Oh, and was that treaty specific? The peace agreement signed by King Charles II of England and several of Virginia's native Indian tribes stated that the royal governor of the colony of Virginia was to be paid each year in 20 beaver skins. That payment was in lieu of taxes and actually was first delivered at the, quote, going away of geese yearly. That's the 1677 way of saying early spring. But it was November 2nd, 1910, that Chief George Major Cook of the Pamunkey Indian Tribe changed the timing of the annual tribute. He presented deer to Governor William Hodges' man. Over the centuries, the tribute naturally moved away from beaver pelts. We've seen the ceremony include geese, turkey, even fish, but deer is pretty much the standard. The original treaty promised that the tribes would be allowed territory and hunting and fishing rights in exchange for loyalty to English rule. How's that for an exchange? The Pamunkey and Mattapanai do have small state-recognized reservations, and the Pamunkey are the state's first federally recognized tribe something that didn't happen until 2016. You and your family may have traditions that go back a few decades, maybe even a generation or two. But here in Virginia, we have the ultimate tradition, the one that goes back more than 300 years and stands tall to the test of time. For many of the segments on how we got here, we're talking about history that can be found in a book or online. But there is plenty of tangible history all around us, especially in Central Virginia. One of the more impressive examples is the Tredegar Ironworks, which was part of the reason why the Confederacy chose Richmond as its new capital in May of 1861. And we get that question a lot from visitors of, so why was Richmond the capital of the Confederacy? It seems really uncomfortably close to Washington, D.C. And a lot of that does come back to the centrality of industry in Richmond. That's Stephanie Arduini. She's the director of education at the American Civil War Museum. 
which recently opened up in a new building on the exact spot where the main Tredegar foundry once stood. So visitors walk up through an archway that was part of the original central foundry for the Tredegar Ironworks. About three sides of the lobby are the ruin wall from that main original central foundry that helped to create a lot of the products that made the Tredegar Ironworks one of the largest ironworks in the country. She blames her father for getting her into history. She moved to Richmond about five years ago. My husband and I were living in Seattle and had a kid and wanted to be closer to the family. So he's from Virginia and this is decidedly closer <laughs> than the other side of the Continental Divide. And it was on November 18, 1861, that the fifth session of the Provisional Confederate Congress met in Richmond, a meeting that would have likely been held in the former capital of Montgomery, Alabama, if not for the big business in Richmond, including Tredegar. Richmond also had a prosperous woolen mill. So the building right next door to us that was basically enveloped by the Tredegar Ironworks was a woolen mill run by Lewis Crenshaw, who is one of the big wealthy folks in the city at the time. And he actually sold his mansion to the city of Richmond to be leased to the Confederate government for Jefferson Davis and his family to live in. He also was involved in a flour mill. So there was a huge flour industry using the water power, especially from the canals and rivers. And as we talked about in season one, Richmond was one of the largest sites of the domestic slave trade. So there was a lot of money here. There was a lot of banking happening here. And that was appealing to the Confederacy, both as resources, but also as an urban center for the Confederacy. And for Tredegar Ironworks, business was booming from the start in the 1830s. The Transcontinental Railroad is building out west. And when you're making things out of iron, a good thing to make out of iron are railroad ties, railroad spikes, car wheels for those railroad cars. And that's where Tredegar really started to move and get a lot of its business. Within the first 15 years of its founding, the owner brought in a graduate of West Point named Joseph Reed Anderson. When he got involved in the ironworks, he brought his knowledge of how the military works and started suggesting like, hey guys, you know a good place to get some money? Sell things to the government, sell things to the military. So they started also making military equipment and weapons here at the Tredegar Ironworks. The railroad still was the bread and butter of what they were doing, but they were innovating and trying new and different products, including things like cannons. And they were selling those cannons to all kinds of customers, including state militias. The ironworks had been selling armaments, so these cannons, to the United States government, which then put some of them down at Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor, as well as to state militias like South Carolina. <laughs> and so when it comes to those first shots of the Civil War at Fort Sumter, there were cannons that were originally made here at Tredegar, likely in this building that we're sitting within the ruins of cast here at the Tredegar Ironworks, shooting at each other. Astounding to think about. My producer, Colton, actually threatened to resign if I didn't say that. He did this interview over at Tredegar, and he could not believe that Richmond-made cannons played such a role in the beginning of the Civil War. And I have to say, 
Colton is right. That is pretty incredible. And get this. Over half of the cannons used by the Confederacy during the Civil War were made at Tredegar. And you can only imagine the conditions inside the foundry on a hot summer day in Virginia. You're dealing with fire and heat all the time. Noxious from the smells of the coal as well as the melted iron and the chemicals you use to do welding and things like that. It would have been incredibly noisy from the sound of these machines. And you can see some historical machines that were used in ironworking around our property. And these are gigantic metal things. And it wasn't just a few people working inside. Workers were packed in there to get as much done as possible. So imagining the energy from just people moving around, the energy from the heat, the machines moving, whole systems of belts and pulleys and drive shafts all moving in addition to the big dangerous machinery and the molten metal <laughs> that you were working with. So this was not something that could be done lightly. In fact, one of the most famous warships in history got her armor from the Tredegar Ironworks, the CSS Virginia, the first ever ironclad. The iron plating for the Virginia, what's also sometimes known as the Merrimack, its former iteration, was developed, rolled, and manufactured here at the Tredegar Ironworks. Iron that was two inches thick wrapped around the Virginia, protecting it from almost any attack. Okay, we have to go down this rabbit hole. In March of 1862, the Virginia terrorized Hampton Roads, destroying two Union ships and running a third aground. Setting up the most famous naval duel in history the next day as the ironclads Virginia and USS Monitor battled to a draw. You can see this massive anchor from the CSS Virginia sitting right outside the American Civil War Museum. And massive is an understatement here. It's hard to believe that thing was ever attached to a ship. But back to our story. Joseph Reed Anderson bought Tredegar Ironworks in the 1850s and was a big proponent of Virginia seceding from the Union. He was out there, you know, with the secession parades as Virginia was debating what to do. And he's like, nope, join the Confederacy. 100% with that. And he actually joined the Confederate military as a general for a while before they said, yeah, you got to go back. You got to go back and run your ironworks because we need those products. That's essential. And you need to make sure that that continues to operate. But things changed for Anderson as quickly as they changed for the Confederacy. And by the end of the war, he was right there having conversations about, okay, the United States Army just marched into Richmond. It's April 1865. I can see what's coming next. Lee is being pursued by Grant out west of the city. Davis and the rest of the Confederate government are gone. Who knows what's next? But he's looking for ways to keep his business going. And takes the oath of allegiance to the United States and Andrew Johnson gives him a pardon and basically says cool thank you just don't do that again <laughs> don't make any more cannons that could be used against us from confederate general to taking an oath of allegiance to the United States one thing stayed constant with Anderson his business 
and it was a business that relied on its employees, many of them free and enslaved blacks. One of them was William Brackens, a free black man who was head of Tredegar's canal boat fleet. The Tredegar Ironworks had a whole big operation out in the Botetourt County area where they were taking raw iron from the mountains and starting to process that and then would ship it down the James River and down the canals through this fleet of giant boats. But even though Brackens was born free, it didn't protect him. During the Civil War, he was also captured at least once by the Confederate Army and impressed to work on the defenses of Richmond. By impressed, Stephanie means forced against his will. Joseph Reed Anderson directs the Ironworks administration to write to the Confederate Army and say, hey, so we want our guy back. If you want your cannons, we need him back. He's more valuable to your cause working for us than building your defenses over there. He's too skilled and too important. And they eventually do release him after two months of impressed labor on the defenses of Richmond. Tredegar Ironworks did not come to a grinding halt when Lee surrendered and Davis was captured. Anderson's family kept it running until the 1950s. And through that entire time, the machinery ran on water power. They eventually got electricity to turn on their lights, but the machinery continued to run on water power. But by the late 1800s, the industry is moving away from iron towards steel. And the Tredegar Ironworks never really switches to steel, so that hampers its ability to grow its business much beyond what it had already been doing. Production continues until 1952, when a fire destroyed most of the buildings. And in 2000, the National Park Service developed Tredegar Ironworks as a primary visitor center for battlefields around Richmond, and the American Civil War Museum finished its renovation of the Cannon Foundry this past summer. Tredegar Ironworks was a gem of Richmond that helped lure the Confederacy to Virginia when they chose a new capital in 1861. Their Provisional Congress meeting for the fifth time on November 18th that year. The Ironworks would have an immense influence on the future of the United States and life in the River City before, during, and for nearly 90 years after the Civil War. Tangible history you can go visit today to better understand how we got here. This podcast is recorded by WWBT NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. Thank you to digital director Kate Albright for meeting our earlier than normal fake deadlines. And to executive producer Colton Weekly. He recently got married, guys. Everyone say congrats. And a special shout out to our guest this episode, Stephanie Arduini with the American Civil War Museum. You must check out Tredegar if you ever visit Richmond. And to Robert Nelson from the University of Richmond. Next week on episode two. The death of the oldest electric streetcar system in America. They were loud, they rattled. You could always hear them coming. Well, sometimes people could, other times they just walked in front of them. There were plenty of streetcar casualties. As America fought for independence, the miraculous story of a slave turned spy, turned folk hero, who had to fight for his own freedom. James's 
espionage, the intelligence he's able to gather, and the role that he played, it's why we're here today. And as you start to think about Thanksgiving this year, we've got the lowdown on how it all began. <laughs> Plus, not that you were thinking about it, but we'll tell you how it became illegal in Virginia to duel to the death. The King's Prime Minister, Lord North, took it like a ball to the breast, meaning as if he'd been shot, and said, my God, it is over. And the day the Americans stunned the Redcoats. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like this from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind, and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at NBC12.com. We'll be back in your life next Monday.